Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Technology is advancing at an amazing pace, creating products and services that were only dreams a decade ago. One of those long-lasting dreams, and has been for decades, is an automobile that drives itself. We're just now getting to the point where that technology is not only possible, but available. And part of that process is for a vehicle to be able to sense the weather and the road. Joining us today is Dr. Bill Gale, CEO and co-founder of Global Weather Corporation, a company that is helping to predict road conditions all across the globe. He's also the former president of the American Meteorological Society, so we'll be picking his brain a bit on a lot of topics today. Please welcome Dr. Bill Gale. Bill, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Marshall. Yeah, this this is this is all. It's always great when I, I have a colleague and friend of the community on the show. Let me give you a little bit of Bill Gale's background because he's he's one of the rock stars of the weather enterprise. Um, has a degree uh, from Stanford University and and also a master's and PhD uh, in electrical engineering, I believe. And if that's wrong, Bill can correct correct me on that. He served as director of Ball Aerospace and Technology Corporation from 1991 and 2005 and the vice president of Bexel Corporation shortly thereafter. He was the president of the American Meteorological Society in, in the, I guess, 2014-2015 time range, because I know you came right after my tenure, and has been the co-founder and CEO of uh, Global Weather Corporation now, uh, for the last several years, I guess I don't know how long you've been the chief executive, but I know you've been with that company for at least over, uh, well over a decade or so. But here's the question that we ask every podcast guest to get us started, and it's a really tough one. What got you in the weather, even though you're an engineer? Yeah, I, I came late to the weather community and uh, I've fallen in love with it, but I sort of followed a winding path in my career. I started out uh, early on, uh, right after undergraduate, I went to the South Pole for a year and was the uh, cosmic ray observer at the South Pole. And I, I like to describe my career as sort of falling in love four times. And when I did that, I fell in love with the geosciences, uh, was something that I hadn't been involved in before, but I was running a number of experiments at the South Pole, lived there for uh, a year and came back, went to graduate school in the geosciences at Stanford, uh, went from there into aerospace. And I fell in love with the space community and doing science from space and building satellites and things like that. So that was my second one. And then I was uh, in a small company uh, in the early 2000s that got acquired by Microsoft and went into software, geospatial software. And I, I fell in love with that again. And then during that process, I, I started the Global Weather Corporation and fell in love with weather. I've been involved in weather for a number of years from the satellite perspective and satellite community. Um, but that's what got me into weather in the long term. And it's just a, an amazing community. It's a, a wonderful group of people to be involved with. Uh, I, the colleagues that uh, I have come to know during my time in the weather community have just been wonderful. And uh, I'm really glad that I ended up here. 
Yeah, well, you you ascended to really one of the highest levels of the weather community by being elected as president of the American Meteorological Society. Um, what were, you know, before we really dive into sort of what we're going to talk about today, there's just really cool things that your company's doing. We, we like to just kind of pick the brains of our colleagues here on the show. Um, what was most memorable to you about your tenure as AMS president? And what, what were some of the things you're most proud of that you got done in that sort of really three-year period, speaking as a fellow AMS president of president-elect president and a year after past president, what, what were what were sort of some of your key sort of thoughts on that time frame in your leadership? Yeah, in some ways it's a whirlwind, as you know, Marshall, and I mean, there's so many things going on, it's hard to keep up with all of them. But I think uh, maybe the most memorable thing is the, the level of volunteer participation and all of the commitment from the, the people in the community across the, the many boards and committees of AMS and the, the various things that AMS does and working with them, just the depth of the, the commitment, the, the passion, the uh, interest in community involvement and community time to that were, were quite memorable. During my time, we kicked off the centennial and that, of course, has been a, a big, uh, big thing over the last few years. One of the things about the centennial is that we look back on the first hundred years, and uh, AMS was a very healthy organization at the time. And we looked at what the centennial meant, and it meant moving towards the future. So not necessarily fixing things were broke that were broken but setting ourselves up for the next 100 years. The next 100 years are going to be different for all of us in terms of the things we do, how people get uh, educated, just a variety of things. And we as a society need to be prepared for that. We need to be thinking in different ways. And that's one of the things we tried to do uh, with the centennial. Yeah, and I think Bill Bill was a real. He's talking about Bill Gale from Global Weather Corporation. Bill Bill still is very active. I I know he's engaged or involved right now as we speak with an effort that NOAA has looking at its research priorities uh, for the coming decade. I know in the past you were involved in, I guess, sort of advising the National Weather Service or through the academies on various reports and so forth. <laughs> Uh, I just want to make sure you understand we're talking to someone that really is a, a key voice in the weather climate enterprise, which gets me to some of this really cool work your company. I, I remember seeing a press release about this, and I want to kind of really hear more about it. But to set this up, let me just kind of sort of reflect on a on an article that was in the American, I mean, in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, a local paper here in Atlanta. I just read a few days ago that talked about a community here in the Gwinnett County area where I live, Peachtree Corners, where they're going to have autonomously driving shuttles in that community, and they're on the roads now. They've been testing them, and now they're actually on the roads. So your company has been working on this technology to forecast road conditions by the kilometer up to a half hour away. So tell us about you know, the sort of convergence of the weather requirements and self-driving or self-autonomous or autonomous cars. Yeah, I, weather is a big challenge for autonomous vehicles. They, they sense the road and the environment around them with uh, LIDARs and cameras and radars and a variety of different sensors. And 
Sometimes those sensors don't perform well in, in difficult weather. So if there's really heavy rain, sometimes the sensors can't see through the rain. Uh, if there's snow on the road, the vehicles tend to rely on the, the road markings to be able to navigate along the road and stay in a lane. And so there are challenges when the weather is difficult, both the atmospheric weather and the conditions of the road surface. If the road is icy or uh, if the road is snow covered, uh, it makes it difficult for these vehicles to drive. And there are a few things that you can do to deal with this. And one of the things to keep in mind is that what we're talking about here is not weather being delivered to people to make decisions, but weather being delivered to machines themselves. And that's a huge part of the future of where this community is going. The past has been weather consumed and viewed by people. The future is weather consumed by machines and using that information to make decisions. And an example of what can happen with autonomous vehicles, not fully autonomous vehicles, but where you have vehicles that are driving themselves, but have a driver that can take over in a difficult situation, they have what's called a disengagement decision. So the vehicle has to decide when the conditions are too poor for the vehicle to be able to operate safely. And that could be icy roads, snowy roads. It could be a lot of different things, but the vehicle has to be able to decide that. Uh, to some extent, that can be done with the vehicle's sensors. Uh, they can; Those sensors can sense the road condition and tell the driver to take over. There are a couple of issues with that. You want to give the driver enough advance warning that the driver can kind of recombobulate himself or herself and take over the wheel and, and drive safely. And that's a number of seconds at minimum. And so you want to anticipate things like bad road conditions at least a few hundred feet ahead so that uh, you can warn the driver with enough time to take over. But ideally, it would be longer. It would be minutes to say, hey, there are bad conditions coming up. You know, please take over the, the vehicle. And so those sensors um, can only see so far ahead. And you'd like to be able to see further ahead. You'd like to be able to sort of give the driver a sense of the overall conditions where they're going over the next few minutes. So that's one way that the weather can contribute. But with fully autonomous vehicles, uh, this inability to function in, you know, with poor road conditions means you want to tell the vehicle ahead of time, don't go to the northeast part of the city, uh, stay elsewhere, or uh, the, the road conditions are going to turn bad. They, one of the things they can do is just find a place to pull over and stop. So these are all decisions that are made at the, the machine level that can be informed by weather conditions beyond what the sensors provide. Yeah. I, and I, remind me again, because again, like I said, I know I saw a press release where you, your company signed a big deal with someone. Who was that someone and what are you doing for them? Yeah, I think the press release you're referring to is um, a partnership we have with a company called Naira Dynamics, and they make estimates of road friction. So, in some sense, what the vehicle really needs to know is the friction on the road. So is the vehicle going to be able to stop safely? Uh, is it going to have enough traction to turn, make lane changes, turn, those sorts of things where you want to ensure that the road is not too slippery? And so we're working with them. They have the ability to use information from the vehicle itself to estimate the road friction. The challenge is that 
they don't have information where vehicles don't exist and they don't have information about the future. So you can imagine that a car company will have a fleet of vehicles and at any one particular time, they will know from the vehicle sensors what the road friction is, where those vehicles are or where those vehicles have been recently. They won't know anything about the road friction where no vehicles are driving. And certainly on smaller roads, where you may only get an occasional vehicle passing, you won't know what's going on. Likewise, if you're trying to anticipate the future, uh, 15 minutes from now, an hour from now, two hours from now, the vehicle data won't really tell you that. So we're working with them to augment their system, their sensor-based system, with our model-based estimates of conditions and forecasts of future conditions so that they have a complete picture. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Bill Gale, who is the CEO of Global Weather Corporation. We're talking about this fascinating world of uh, semi-autonomous or autonomous vehicles. Uh, this is ground that we've dabbled with a little bit on Weather, Ge weather Geeks in the past, but not at this level. So it's really uh, very instructive to have you. You know, a question that comes to mind, I want to kind of step back a little bit, Bill. So talk to the listeners, because we have a range of listeners on Weather Geeks from the sort of just curious to those that are fairly science and the engineering attentive. I, and this is really a question in my mind also. Um, what is the value and reasoning why we're moving to autonomous vehicles in the first place? Why do we need them on the roads? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of different perspectives on that. Uh, personally, I'm happy to sit and do my work in the vehicle rather than having to drive it. Some people sure. want to drive vehicles and I, I'm sure there will always be, always be vehicles that can be driven, but yeah, there are a couple of things going on. One is, one is that vehicles are greatly underutilized. Your, your car sits in your garage most of the time. So it's an asset that you're paying for and yet you're not using it all that much. So there's some notion that from an economic standpoint, keeping vehicles used all the time, by sharing vehicles is one way to uh, increase the economic value of a vehicle. It's like airplanes with airlines. You know, they fly the airlines all the time because every time they, the plane's sitting, they're not uh, getting the value out of it. Another is safety. So, so much of the, the problem with accidents, both injuries and deaths, is due to the human factor. People who aren't driving well get distracted. Um, don't recognize that they need to drive slower on snowy or icy roads. So, you know, many, many, many of the accidents are related to things that could be solved by, by autonomous vehicles. Um, there's always the potential for an autonomous vehicle to make its own mistake. But I think the belief is that when you greatly reduce the, the human factor, 
the number of accidents will go down quite considerably. So it's you know it's convenience, it's safety, it's economics, it's a number of different things, and you can see the industry recognizing this, whether it happens five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it's pretty clear that we're going that direction. Yeah, I could, I could see it coming. And like I said, it's already here in parts of Gwinnett County where I live. They have you know an autonomous shuttle fleet over probably 15 miles from where I live. Uh, you mentioned sort of different conditions that you know affect these remote sensors. So a little weather geeks 101 here. I mean, these the you know remote sensing is when we're sensing something without actually touching or, or in situ. So weather satellites are remote sensing uh, when they're measuring clouds from space. Your eye is remote sensing the television when you're watching TV because you're watching something using the visible portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. You mentioned that these vehicles are using things like LIDARs, which are lasers, which is an active uh, remote sensor. What is the is there a particular weather condition that is sort of the holy grail problem right now for this or or is rain snow ice conditions or are they just all a problem I'm, I'm just wondering if there's one that really sticks out as being a particular hurdle yeah i i think snow is probably the biggest one at this point because it, it covers everything and everything looks different to a sensor uh certainly Atmospheric conditions like snow and rain in the extreme can be difficult for sensors, just as they can be for human drivers, where it gets difficult to see very far ahead. So, so those those are important. But snow, uh, any kind of ice or snow that's covering the road, just changes the environment so so considerably that they become challenges for the sensors. Yeah, and my producer, J.D., one of our outstanding Weather Geeks producers, a shout out to J.D., he had a question which is really interesting. He says, is the kilometer resolution accurate enough when dealing with microclimates or elevation changes, steep ones particularly? Yeah, I I mean, that's a great question. And we're still in the, the early phases of all of this. And so when we build a road weather forecast, we use a lot of different inputs. We use models. We use... Uh, weather radar data, we use uh, sensor data, and those data sources tend to have their own native resolution on the order of one to a few kilometers. So the ability to improve the forecast below a kilometer uh, is a, a challenging thing right now. It's something that we're working on very hard, and the vehicle sensor data themselves may be the solution to this. So vehicles are capable of measuring things like road friction, atmospheric temperature, uh, wipers, which are a proxy for precipitation at very fine scales. So now you have a new source of data that can allow you to get finer spatial and temporal resolution, but it needs to be used in a different way than traditional weather data sources. So Oftentimes, we think that when we have a new data source, we will throw it into a numerical weather prediction model, assimilate it into the model, and we will improve the output of the model. But the challenge is that for very very short-term forecasts for current conditions estimates or the next, say, hour or less, the latency of those numerical weather prediction models is just too much. So you have one or two or three or even four hours of computation time 
with that data is simulated, and that the data gets old fast in the sense that its ability to influence the forecast uh, drops quickly the older the data is. So what you want to be doing is taking that data in after you after you you, you want to start with the numerical weather prediction model. You want to access the vehicle data and you want to use that vehicle data to update the prediction with a very low latency, sort of minutes of latency. Uh, and then you can use that data to make fine scale adjustments. So even if you have a numerical weather prediction model at several kilometers scale, you can improve the spatial fidelity of your forecast at subgrid scales by using that vehicle data information. But the techniques for doing that are still in their infancy. So this is not something that we, we really know how to do. Uh, my company has been innovating in this area. We've been uh, developing technologies and we have some patents on some of them for exactly how to do this because we do believe that this is the future, taking the existing information at sort of multiple kilometer scale and making really fine scale corrections once the vehicle data becomes widely available. And it's still, the vehicle data itself is still in its infancy that we're not getting data from big enough fleets yet. And so everybody's in the learning process here. Yeah, this is this is really fascinating. I'm talking with Bill Gale about some really interesting technology. You know, I mean, I, I got a, a new vehicle recently and, you know, the, you know, I've been trying to figure out, you know, I've always had these sort of automated wipers and it really, you know, I do rainfall related research. So I, you know, I've been thinking about sort of these sort of automated wipers that are sort of calibrated to rain rate in some regard. And I was like, wow, that's really useful information. I mean, how, how you know, as someone that worked in the trim and GPM world for a while at NASA and sort of validation and these types of things, like, you know, how can we utilize this sort of rain rate information that we're literally getting from these um, cars driving around the fleet. And so it sounds like you're sort of on the trail of that. Um, you know, I guess the question that comes to mind, you know, there, you know, there, are you using sort of, and this gets into another question I wanted to talk to you about today. Anyhow, um, I'm assuming your company's using your own proprietary model and I mean, you're taking sort of, I guess, data from NOAA and other federal sources and you're adding value with your own sort of techniques and own proprietary models. Is that correct? Yeah. So let me explain that because that's a, that's a great question. So our focus is on the post-processing step. So we don't run our own numerical weather prediction okay. models. Uh, there are huge investments at NOAA and ECMWF and UK Met and Environment Canada in those models. Huge amounts of money going into them, you know, large number of servers uh, to run those. It's really hard to compete with that. And some companies are starting to do that, but you have to make sort of equivalent investments in order to be able to uh, run a model that's equally good with those models. So we focus on... The, what's called the post-processing step, statistical post-processing. And what we do is we take each of those models and we improve on the model and then further improve on that through a combination of the models. So we do a, a regression analysis on the models at all locations where we have observations and you can, you can generate a bias adjustment that allows you to improve the accuracy of the underlying models. So we can improve on the accuracy of GFS or ECMWF. 
or the her, or any of those models. And we do that for each of those models. Then what we do is we create what's called a consensus combination of the models. So we look at the, uh, the performance of each model uh, against observations over the last several days, and we weight the, the performance. So if ECMWF is doing better than GFS, we give ECMWF more weight. If GFS is doing better, we give GFS more weight. And we do this dynamically. So we're actually doing this. I, I did the computation the other day. So every hour we're doing this 40 billion times because it's you know a number of hours, a number of lead times, you know, millions of locations. Uh, and, and so it, it, you multiply those numbers together and you get a large number of optimization. So think of this as a, you know, a post-model re-optimization of the, the forecast system. And so we're doing that 40 billion times every hour. I tell you, you're sort of bringing me back to sort of a, my master's thesis days at Florida State University because part of my master's thesis was an optimization problem using genetic algorithms. We were trying to use this massive volume of, at that time, WSR88D or, or NextRad data that was just coming online to sort of run these little optimization problems to sort of identify the sort of nooks and crannies of the, the eye and rain man features in hurricanes. So uh, I actually really do uh, sort of <laughs> having flashbacks here when you talk about this optimization problem. Let's take a break and then we'll come right back and I want to switch gears on you. Yeah, I can talk about the road model as well, Marshall, if you want to hear about that, because that's an additional model. Yeah, I, w- I want to talk all about it. Let's, let's talk okay. about the next. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Bill Gill of Global Weather Corporation. And you, you mentioned another type of model that you're working with. Tell us about that. Yeah, so to compute the conditions of the road surface, you have to go another step. So what we do is we start with the atmospheric weather as an input to a road physics model. And that road physics model uh, addresses the the thermal physics of the road surface. So you have a lot of sources of energy coming into the road. You have solar radiation, you have the uh, atmospheric temperature through uh, conduction and and, um, convection. So transfers of the the road heat into the atmosphere. You actually have the friction of vehicles that are driving along the road. You have the transfer of the heat from the road surface down to the road bed and then heat the transfers back up at night. So all of these things are going on. And we, we compute all of those heat transfers to determine the temperature of the road itself. And the temperature, of course, is what determines whether snow, when it falls, whether it will melt or stick, you know, how long it takes to melt, how long the road takes to dry, all of those things. So that you know, when the sun is out, obviously the road dries faster than when it's cloudy. So all of those things factor into our model. Uh, what we do, we do all this without 
any sensor data. So um, people have been doing this for a long time at locations where you have road weather information system sensors that measure the temperature of the road surface, and then you can use it as an input to a model. We do this without that information. So we're able to do this for every kilometer of road anywhere in the world. And uh, I'm always amazed by the accuracy that we're able to achieve. So the, the road temperature can differ from the air temperature by as much as 20 degrees. Um, all you have to do is go out and put your hand down the road. You know it can be quite warm if the sun is shining. We're able to, to uh, estimate the road temperature to within one to two degrees C anywhere in the world. Wow. And that's what allows us to get an accurate estimate of what happens to the, the rain or the snow when it falls on the road. And that's what it's all about is the evolution of the snow, the rain. Uh, many times people think, uh, well, the, the road surface conditions, all you have to do is look at whether it's raining or snowing. And then you say, you know, the road's going to be wet or the road's going to be snowy. But I mean, you know that the roads stay wet or snowy long after a storm has passed. And that's what's so critical, especially with autonomous vehicles. They don't want to know just what's happening in the atmosphere. They want to know what's happening on the road surface. Yeah, and no, I think that's critical. Yeah, I, we're, we're getting, we're not quite out of time, but we're getting out of time, c- c- close to that time. And I want to switch gears on you a bit. Um, my producers noted that you wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times two years ago about the unknowns of climate change, not just the unknowns, but the unknown unknowns. Uh, what, what, do you, what did you mean by that? Yeah, um, <laughs> there, there, are, there are things that um, we know that we don't know. So we don't know how fast the ice sheets are going to melt. We don't know exactly how fast sea level is going to rise. But we know that we need to observe those things and and model them uh, because they are going to happen at some point in time or at some rate or uh, we, we know what we are looking for. The big concern is those things we don't even know what to look for. And this probably is more important for ecosystems that are complex. So you know, much of the, the physical implications of climate change, we do have a good sense to at least look for things. The concern here is those things that we don't even know to look for, changes in fisheries, changes in you know, wildlife habitats, changes in um, you know, pollination patterns in, in plants and things. And, and, and while we watch for some of them and we watch for surprises, this is a complex world and we will get surprised by things that we didn't even anticipate we had to watch for. And that's, that's what that article was about. And we're, you know, this is just the complexity of the system that we live in. You can never underestimate that complexity and the, the nonlinear things that can happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's goes for weather for sure as well. well speaking of which, Bill, you, again, you're, you're a key stakeholder in this and, and, and voice in the weather enterprise. Uh, I've got you here so to take advantage of it. Um, we just had a new administration take over here in the U S um, 
you know, there was a lot of discussion about weather and you know, new technologies and the social sciences and risk and uncertainty and lots of things going on in terms of the weather enterprise. Putting on your lens as sort of a visionary in this field, um, what, are, what are the big challenges going forward for the weather community or operational research or otherwise from your lens? And, and what, what do we need to be focusing on here in the short term, zero to five year time frame? Yeah, I, I like to say we're in the third phase of the weather enterprise, at least the third recent phase. So the third big advance, I guess, is a way to say it. So the, the first of those was the advent of uh, satellite observing systems back in the, the 60s and 70s. And our ability to see what, what what's going on with weather, to observe weather, to monitor it, uh, and to to really develop um, a, a good understanding of what's happening on a global basis and uh, use that information to understand you know, what can happen tomorrow and the next day and the day after. And then the, the second big revolution was the advent of modeling. So in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the, the maturity of models grew quite rapidly our ability to model the weather and use that as a primary source of weather forecast capability. So uh, to some extent, replacing human judgment by what the, you know, the models can do. So we're no longer primarily rely, relying on human judgment. Human judgment is used to sort of refine and second guess the model, but we rely so heavily on the models now. The third big revolution that we're in the middle of now is how you get that information out to people and businesses. And the emergence of mobile devices has played a huge, huge role. Obviously, that's been in, sometimes we think it's uh, always been with us, but it's really only been the last 10 years that people have had smartphones and the ability to access this information through apps. And it's really changed how we get that information to people rather than getting weather information once a day on the, you know, the newspaper and the TV, people get it constantly. And I think we're all just learning how to make use of that, how to rely on weather information on a much more persistent basis to make decisions, uh, to drive uh, internet of things, uh, all kinds of stuff where we're still in that learning process. So, that to me is the, the big thing that's going on right now. And this is making sure the information gets out, you know, as we've discussed to everybody um, in an equi equitable way. Uh, people have had varying access to weather information, some people much better than others. And now we have an opportunity to make that much more equitable. So that's, a, a I think, a big focus of the community in the next five or 10 years is making that information widely available, widely used, and of high quality along the way. I mean, do you worry about sort of this availability of the weather data by everyone causing misinterpretations? I mean, I know I've seen situations where, you know, there have been sort of sort of looks at the apps or looks at little emojis or sort of misinterpretations of radar because everyone's got, like you said, has access to it. But, um, you know, so I, I, I wonder, I, I've often thought about, you know, I've often framed in terms of we've kind of moved from the sort of from the second phase to sort of development of these models to now in the social sciences where we're modeling human behavior so that we can understand how they're consuming this information. So, yeah, I'm just curious about your thoughts there. Yeah, and that's an important piece of this. Uh, if you go to some nations, uh, they 
are so concerned about this issue that they want to constrain weather information to their national weather agency and they want to sort of prevent uh, apps from appearing. Uh, they, they want to uh, limit access to apps on mobile phones so that they are the authoritative source of information. And you can understand why, because it is safety critical oftentimes, uh, and people do sometimes make bad decisions if they have the, the wrong information. I think we've achieved a really interesting balance of that here in the U.S. So people do understand that they have multiple sources of weather information. They know they can go to one source for one purpose, another source for another purpose. And there is a certain area that should be reserved for sort of authoritative information. And that's hurricanes, tornadoes, really safety critical where you do want to have one source instead of conflicting sources. And I think we've achieved that actually quite well in this country with people understanding that the National Weather Service is the authoritative source for certain situations, but understanding that they can go to various apps, various uh, weather information sources for other purposes. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's one of the things that I was recently talking to Louie about on this very podcast, sort of um, where that voice and role is as as we sort of, again, shift to sort of the pub more so. It's always been there. It's just even stronger public-private partnerships within the weather enterprise. This is probably a good place to end that I could talk to Bill. For, you know, I, I know Bill has a meeting. I don't know if he's going to. Same <laughs> thing uh, I have uh, right after our taping of this podcast. But um, before we do that, Bill, where, where can people find out more about your company on the internet or social media or you? Yeah, uh, globalweathercorp.com. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, you go to our website. We've uh, really recently increased our, our presence on LinkedIn. So you'll see us posting there. Very good. So de- definitely check, check them out. But I can't get out of here. It's time for the Geek of the Week. We've got to do that before we leave. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Blake Naftel. Blake is a freelance videographer and is the quintessential weather geek and storm chaser. He pours over weather maps and models daily and daily and chases storms frequently around his native lower Michigan. He's chased storms since 1999 when his first video of a rain-wrapped tornado garnered him a mention on the local news broadcast. Keep up the great work, Blake, and stay safe. And thank you for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast, by the way. By the way, if you know of someone we should highlight as our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll talk to you next time.